At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. In February of 2015, you may recall the world was horrified to watch the cold and calculated and brutal execution of 21 Christians at the hands of a militant ISIS cell on the shores of Libya. These young men were not educated, they were not scholarly, they were not men of means, they were simple men, migrant workers who had traveled from their native Egypt over to, over to Libya to work construction in order to provide for their families back home. And in the video, the transcript that plays during this event declares that these men were beheaded for being, quote, people of the cross. It is very likely that these men had been given the opportunity to denounce Jesus, but they all refused. Many of them can be seen praying, even saying, oh, Lord Jesus, as their throats were cut. So many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience persecution. They experience bodily harm. They experience death day in and day out. It is estimated that 16 Christians every single day lose their life as a direct result of their faith. What if living in that environment was your experience? What would you need to know? What would you want to hear that would give you encouragement, that would give you hope, that would give you the same kind of resolve that those incredible 21 young men had? Now, we may not be in fear of losing our life here in Lapeer County, but that question is actually relevant to us as well. We are under constant pressure to succumb to the power structures of our culture, to adopt ungodly values, to abandon the way of the cross. And what might motivate us towards faithfulness in our mission? So now we are currently in the middle of a series called All Things New, and we're looking at the last four chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation was written by the Apostle John, who is quite old now. I mean, he was quite, he'd be really old now. He was quite old then, um, probably around 100 years old when he wrote the book. And because of his faith, because of John's faith and his mission work, he had been exiled to a Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos. Now, the island of Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea that sits halfway between present-day Greece and Turkey. So John was sitting on this island, and something amazing happens. He's visited by an angel who gives him a series of visions that portrays to him what things are going to happen in the, in the, at some point in the future. And the purpose of these visions is for John to bless and encourage a group of churches that were in the area that were starting to come under pressure and persecution from the surrounding Roman Empire. And these churches were being tempted to abandon Christ, to give up their, their godly values as cultural and governmental influences started to weigh in on those churches from all sides. And the message that God, God's conveying through John to these churches and ultimately to ours as well is one of hope. Stay the course, overcome, be focused on the prize because God will make all things new. Now, if you recall, two weeks ago, Pastor Brooks started off this message series um, looking at Revelation 19 and the first half of Revelation 19, and we focused on the fact that our God is worthy of all praise. All of his characteristics are worthy of praise. And then last week, Pastor John um, talked about the second half of Revelation where we were reminded that Christ our King is victorious and he will defeat his enemies. And now John 
of the apostle, not our pastor, wants us to envision what Jesus' return to earth will look like. He wants to encourage his audience, which is us as well, by showing them that Christ will defeat his enemies. And this is the big idea that we have today. Christ will reign in a millennial kingdom. That is the encouragement that John wants us to know today. Now, why is this an encouragement? Well, before we get to that point, I want to start and give us some background and maybe some information on Revelation that's going to be a little bit pertinent for us to understand. See, unlike most of the Bible, Revelation is written in a style of writing, a literary style called apocalyptic writing. All right? And this apocalyptic writing is a combination of narrative and prose that is also combined with imagery and symbolism and hyperbole. It's kind of an over-the-top writing style. And the tricky part about this kind of writing is twofold. The first of all is because of the nature of the writing, sometimes it's hard to understand. There's lots of symbolism and lots of imagery. So it's hard to just understand exactly what the author's talking about. And the second part is sometimes there can be several legitimate ways to understand the text. So we have to wade through all that today. Now, if the complexity of the entire, of the entire book wasn't enough, our text today in the first six verses of, of Revelation that describes this millennium period are the most debated of the entire book, maybe even the entire Bible. Now, this term millennium simply means a thousand years, and it's mentioned five times in the first six verses that we're going to look at. Seems like it would be straightforward, but it's not. See, the characteristics of this time period are not fully understood and obvious. So people that are much smarter than you and me have been debating the exact nature of this millennium for literally hundreds of years. In fact, entire theological systems have been built around these interpretations. And if you've been around church for a while, you may be familiar with some of these terms like premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial and I don't really care or no millennial. All sorts of interpretations that come along with uh, this, this message and this text that we're looking at today. And the bodies of written work that defend all of these positions can be overwhelming. Now, if you're not familiar with, your ter- with those terms, that's okay too. In fact, it might even be better for you because you're approaching this passage with sort of a clean slate. You might be asking, Jerry, why are you telling this? Why are you telling all this? What's the point? If all of these hoity-toity scholars can't figure it out and agree, what chance do you and I have on a Sunday morning? I mean, if I wanted to be confused, I'd just stay home and I don't know, read Shakespeare or something, right? What's the point of coming to church and talking about something that is hard to understand? This is why. Because when we set aside all of those debates and just look at the text for what it is, it is incredibly encouraging. There is a message of hope and anticipation. And as we envision what the future might hold in whatever shape or form it comes, it's extremely exciting. And that's what we want to focus on today. Do you know what I think the key to, giving, to getting the most out of Revelation is? It's this, it's this one thing. It's just being okay with a little discomfort. We don't like discomfort. We don't like ambiguity. We want the facts, man. Give me the facts, Jerry. Tell me the, the where, the what, the why, the how, and the when. I want it all so I can see it and, and prove it in my own mind. We don't like mystery. But if we're going to go through Revelation, there's going to be a, some mystery. And there's going to be some things that we might not feel comfortable with. I recently got a lesson um, in discomfort. I love riding a motorcycle. It's one of my favorite things to do. And uh, when I ride, I always wear a helmet. And I also have a, um, um, because there's not a lot of padding up here, Um, I also have this handkerchief that I put on my head, this kind of like do-rag, whatever you want to call it, Um, put it on my head, and then I put my helmet on, and then I go out riding. And just a couple weeks ago, 
was riding down the highway, having a great time, had the music blasting, and bam, I got hit in the head with a bug, right? Now, if you ride, if you ride motorcycles, that's what you sign up for. It's part of the package, right? So I didn't think anything of it until about two or three miles down the road when suddenly I felt the little pitter-patter of feet on my scalp between my head and this handkerchief that was on my head. This bug, obviously, when it hit me, had gone up under the scarf, and it had been dazed. And I can imagine what that bug was thinking. It was like... It was flying along, things were great, and all of a sudden, bam, and it wakes up and it's dark, and it's like, what's the smooth surface that I'm walking on? I don't get it. And he's trying to find his way out, and he's going back and forth, and he would come to the front, and I'm like, yes, yes, and he would turn and go to the back, and I'm like, no, and I'm trying to help him get out. I'm like, get out, get out, get out. And go like this, go like this, and I'm sure people driving by are like, oh my goodness, he's having a seizure. What do we do to help him? I had to force myself to be okay with a little discomfort. Otherwise, I was going to wipe out. Right? I had to force myself. And there is plenty of opportunity when we read Revelation to wipe out because there's so many details and we don't want that to happen. So you'll notice in this series, sometimes when we read a certain set of texts or verses, we don't always go into the nitty-gritty detail of every single part of that passage. Not that it wouldn't be interesting, but it's not really beneficial for our purposes, which is to avoid those rabbit trails and focus on the what and, most importantly, the why. So with that in mind, a good starting question as we approach our passage today is to ask ourselves, what are the markers that define this millennium period that we're, dis- that we're discussing, that we're talking about? And how might those help us understand the bigger question of why? So let's jump in and read. Turn to your books, your devices, or the screen to Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 20. And the first part here is we're going to be looking at the first three verses. And John says this, Then I saw, and that's a key word, by the way, the word saw, that means John is relaying one of those visions, he's replaying for us one of those visions that the angel gave to him. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into, (laughs) sorry about that, All right, he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. The first marker that we see here that defines the millennium is that Satan will be bound. Now, throughout Revelation, John has has described what is sometimes called the unholy trinity. It's a set of three beings that are, are the enemies of God and his people. It's the beast the false prophet, and the dragon. And as we move through this ending part of Revelation, John is kind of starting to bring this story to a close. And he's telling us how these enemies of God are defeated. In fact, if you were here last week in Revelation 19, we saw the battle between Jesus and the forces of evil resulting in this amazing victory for Jesus. And the beast and the false prophet were captured and they were thrown into everlasting torment in the lake of fire. So with those two out of the picture... John, in our passage today, turns his attention to the remaining member of that unholy trinity, the devil himself. And he uses four words to describe him. If you look in verse 2, four words all come together to describe this being. He calls him the dragon. He calls him that that ancient serpent, harking back to Genesis when the serpent, the devil, deceived Adam and Eve, who is the devil and Satan. Those are the four words. All right, the four words. I think John is like saying, okay, I want to I make sure that you understand who we're talking about here. 
Right? No confusion. This is devil, the devil, this is Satan, this is consummate evil itself, the adversary of God's people throughout history. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world. This is where he does his dirty work, right here around us and among us. So this angel comes down from heaven, and he's on his way down to where Satan is, on, so where Satan is at, and he's on a mission, and he's holding two things, right? He's holding a key, and he's holding a chain. And I can't help but think, where, where do you find a chain in heaven? And what kind of chain are you slinging to capture Satan? I'm like, is there lockers in heaven? You know, like trumpets and swords and chains. And I go to the chain locker and pull out the chain. Do you get Satan? I have no idea where this chain comes from. But it is sufficient to capture Satan. We know that. And this angel comes flying out of heaven, and he's on a mission to capture Satan. Now look here how Satan fights back. Oh, wait, he doesn't. He doesn't even put up a fight Nothing. He doesn't fight back at all. Why? Because he can't. Understand this, guys. Satan is completely and utterly subject to the power of God. Satan is completely and utterly subject to the power of God. And what does that mean for you and me? It means everything. Look at 1 John 4, 4. It's a great passage of encouragement to believers. Little children... You are from God, so he's talking to us as believers. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. In this passage, if we were to look earlier in that chapter, he's talking about evil spirits. So he's saying, little children, you, um, you are from God and you have overcome the evil spirits for he who is in you, God himself who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. Who is who? Satan. We just learned that. Greater is he that is in you is greater, is greater than he that is in the world. So I attended college the exact same four years as my cousin. Um, we lived in different parts of the country, and so we came together at this small Christian university and kind of renewed our friendship, and we got along real well. But just to give you an idea, I was a computer science major, and he played football for the university. So just to give you an idea what it looked like when we came into lunch together, this nerd and this jock, right? And uh, he was good-looking, and, and all the girls thought he was good-looking, and, and I learned very quickly that if I met a girl, I should never tell her that, that Curtis was my cousin. Because as soon as she found Curtis was my cousin, she's like, oh, Curtis is your cousin? Will you introduce me to him? No, I cannot do that. It was like it became invisible. It was like she just wanted to meet Curtis. I wasn't even there anymore. I'm like, hi, I'm still here. I'm good with computers. <laughs> like that really mattered. <laughs> it does now, but it didn't then. So one, floor, uh, one particular year, we went to Florida. I think it was our junior year. And so myself and Curtis and one of his football buddies, Jeff, we went to Florida for spring break. Uh, and we were good kids. We didn't do anything bad or crazy. But we just wanted to get there and enjoy, enjoy the beach and get a break from school. So one particular day, we were walking down the beach right along the waterfront there. And uh, we were walking. I noticed that people were kind of looking at us just a little bit funny. And I felt like some people were whispering as we were walking by. And I couldn't figure out why until I kind of stopped and took took stock of what this looked like. So here we are walking down the beach, and here's this computer nerd, this skinny, gangly, ugly guy with shorts that don't fit, and I didn't own any sunglasses. I got this big Coke barrel glasses, and I'm walking down right, and, e and on either side of me, like a half step behind, are these two great big honking athletes. These jocks are walking along like this, and they have sunglasses and perfectly fitting swim trunks and all these muscles, and they got that, that jock walk, you know, that, that walks like this because their muscles are too big. You can't walk. So they're walking like this, right? And I I realize these people must think the only reason this guy is, is walking is they must be his bodyguards. He must be famous. 
And like, I've got bodyguards. This is so, well, they didn't know it, but I was like, I've got bodyguards. This is so cool. And I thought, you know, I could go up and kick sand in someone's face and they wouldn't even be able to do anything, which is like the exact opposite of how my life played out up to that point. And so I was so excited to have these bodyguards. And it got me thinking, how famous do you have to be for the God of the universe to come down and take residence in your heart and be your advocate and be your protector? Here's the cool thing. You don't have to be famous at all. You just have to be you, willing to give your life to Christ and follow him. That's it. That's an incredible and amazing truth. Now, back to our our text here. The angel throws Satan into this bottomless pit, and he locks it, and he seals it. Now, this bottomless pit is not hell. Um, It's not the lake of fire. It's sort of like a supernatural, unholy place, kind of like the netherworld. It's a place of evil. And this is where God seals Satan. Now, in the ancient days, a seal designated authority. Um, You recall when Jesus was uh, uh, killed and buried, they put him in a tomb and they sealed the tomb. For some reason, when I grew up, I always thought that meant they put like glue around the tomb or something like that. I didn't know what the word seal meant. But it actually means they put like this, this marker, this, this sash, this seal that said, this is under the authority of the Roman government. And if you break this seal, you are guilty and you will be judged in a Roman court. And this is just like that, only on a much bigger scale. God puts this seal in the abyss, or on the abyss. Satan is wound up by a chain. He's thrown in the abyss. It's locked in there. And then it is sealed with the seal of God. And there is nobody who has more authority than God does. There is nobody that can break that seal and free Satan from prison. So he is completely powerless. And what is the purpose of his imprisonment? You might say, well, to be punished, of course, but that's not the case. If you look at this verse again, verse 3, we find out why he was put in this bottomless pit. It says here, and the angel threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might, what, not deceive the nations any longer. The purpose is to prevent the devil from using his capacity to deceive. This is what he does. It's one of his roles. He deceives you and me. He deceives government. Governments, he deceives entire nations. And God is saying, not now, not this time. I'm going to make you powerless while I put in place this kingdom. Now, Satan will be punished. All right, that's coming. And if you want to see that, it's pretty cool. Spoiler alert. It happens next week, so make sure you come back next week to see how that happens. But I want you to stop and think for a minute. The influence that Satan attempts to have on you and me in our Christian life. Look how Jesus describes Satan. Look at this in John 8.44. In this passage, Jesus is actually talking to a group, a group of religious leaders. And he's kind of taking them to task. They've been very hypocritical. They've completely missed the point of why Jesus is here. And so he's kind of lecturing them. And so in John 8, 44, he says to them, You are of your father, who? The devil. If, if Jesus calls your father the devil, it's time to take stock of your life choices up to that point. And he says, And your will is to do your father's desires. Ouch. But then here's the part that's, Relevant to what we're talking about today. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the ultimate evil. He's an accuser. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. And it is in his very nature to be a liar. That's who he is. There's no truth in him at all. Now look at the other side of the spectrum. Just a couple chapters later, in John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. 
And he's giving them some encouragement. And this is what he says in John 14, 16 to 17 to his followers. This is a great passage. He says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of what? What's it say? Truth. The spirit of truth. He's given us the spirit of truth. Oops, I lost my spot there. He's given us the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So on one hand, we've got the father of lies, and on the other, we have what? The spirit of truth. And which one is in you? The spirit of truth. And which one is greater? The spirit of truth. Don't forget that. So when Satan camps out on your shoulder, and he starts whispering to you, you screwed up again. What kind of Christian are you? That would never happen if you were a real Christian. Just give up. I mean, don't even try. Don't get up. Just wallow in your sin. Give it up. God cannot love you. Or what if he says, you know what? I saw you yell at your kids. You're a terrible mom. They have no chance. They are not going to be godly men and women. That's a lie. If he says to you, you're divorced, God can't use you. You know that. Well, sure, Jesus never said that. But you know in your heart that that's not true. You struggle with depression? Look at all these happy Christians here. What kind of Christian are you? If you're anxious, God, God must not be in your heart. You wouldn't struggle with that. You guys, those are all lies and so many more that he wants to feed you, to deceive you and accuse you and turn your attention away from the one who loves you. I want you to grab this next verse and hold on to it for all your might. If you were dozing up to this point, fine. And if you want to take a nap afterward, that's totally okay with me. But I want you to grab this verse right here. And don't forget this verse. To me, it's one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you are a follower of Christ, there is no condemnation. None. Not a zilch. Zero. It doesn't say a little bit. It doesn't say sometimes or on some days you'll be condemned. None at all. Listen to me, you guys. There is nothing that you have done in the past. There is nothing that you have done today. There is nothing that you will do in the future that cannot be covered by the incredible saving grace of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. Now, this reminder or maybe this realization that Satan is subject to God and will be bound during this millennium time should motivate us to persevere, to endure, and to continue forward with the way of the cross. So what's the next marker? The first one is Satan will be bound. What's the second marker of the millennium? So let's read the next section here. Back to Revelation 20. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. Then I saw, so we have another vision, then I saw thrones, And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast nor its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be the priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this vision starts off with a set of thrones, and on those thrones reside a group of people who have the authority to judge. And in front of them are a group of saints who have been resurrected, the saints who have been faithful and did not bow or worship to the beast. 
And this is the second marker. These faithful saints will reign with a victorious king. Now, who are the people on the thrones? Well, it's not real clear, shocker, um, but it appears to be a heavenly council of some sort whose purpose is to validate that these saints have, these, that have the right to assume rule over the kingdom. And interestingly enough, this is a kingdom that just previously was ruled by those evil forces that we just talked about in chapter 19. So this is an incredible truth. And this imagery that we're seeing here was actually foretold way back in Daniel. In Daniel 7.18, it says this, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So we, be, so we see both in Daniel and Revelation this promise that God's people will someday reign in his kingdom with authority and judgment. That'll be a, a cool day. And here's something that's really amazing about this set of verses. Previous passages have talked in Revelation about a time of evil in this world where the systems of power and the corrupt systems of government led by the beast and the false prophet make life very difficult for believers. Believers who don't bow down and worship the beast and those false idols are persecuted and martyred. And this kingdom on evil, this kingdom of evil on earth is passing judgment on those saints. But then what happens? In the scene that played out last week, heaven comes crashing in on the scene. Jesus appears on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood, carrying a sword, and he obliterates all of his enemies, and he captures the beast and the false prophet, and he throws them into the lake of fire. And then what we read today is God resurrects those very saints that were martyred and persecuted during that time of evil, and he resurrects them. And that heavenly council puts them where? In charge of the very kingdom where they were persecuted and killed. Talk about a reversal of roles. These saints that were abused and persecuted are now in charge. What an amazing thing. It's like the, the kingdom was taken from the beast and given to the saints. If you have kids, I'm sure you've had that situation where one of your children walks up to another and grabs that toy and walks away, right? And says, this is mine. I mean, my, my kids never did that. But I've heard that other, um, other kids do that. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but this is just, and what, what happens when, when, when you see that? You're like, oh, no, you didn't. And you're like, that's not yours. That is yours, right? That's like this happening only on a grand scale. Jesus is saying, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, forces of evil, this is not yours. This kingdom is not yours. You did not attain it, obtain it. This is mine, and I'm going to take it from you, and I'm going to give it to those saints who are faithful to me. Now, John calls this the first resurrection. It is only for those who are with Christ. And as we read in here that those who are dead but not in Christ, they'll be resurrected for a judgment at the end of millennium, something we'll explore more next week. Now, John concludes with three distinct blessings for those who overcome, for those who are faithful. The first one is this. It says the second death has no power over them. Now, the second death is kind of an interesting phrase. It basically refers to um, being thrown into the lake of fire, being tormented in hell. It's a sobering thought. But John says here, you know what? If you are a faithful saint, that's not in your future. That's That's not something you have to worry about. And the second blessing is this. It says they will be priests of God and Christ. Now, based on the Old Testament function of the priest, we can, we can infer from that that it means these saints will have personal access to and a living fellowship with of the Almighty God of the universe, which is an amazing thing. And then the third, the third one is that they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. These saints will reign with Christ for the entire millennium. And this is the restoration of God's original purpose for us from all the way back in Genesis. When we were created in Genesis, it says we were, in Genesis it says we were created in God's image. 
We are created in his likeness. We are meant and destined to be his representatives on this earth, being agents of his rule to the rest of the world. And that's come full circle. That was the intention when God first created us, and that's what happens, what we see today in our text, when his saints rule. What an incredible encouragement to look forward to. Back when my kids were little, um, they were playing this video game that they were all wrapped up in. It was a Pokemon game, if you're familiar with Pokemon. And the object of this game was you had this character, and you had to go through a series of puzzles and quests. And if you were successful, it would unlock a new and more powerful character, and then you had another set of puzzles and quests, and then you would unlock a new character, and so on and so on. But for a long time, they were trying to unlock this character, and the character's name was Mewtwo, if I, if I recall correctly. And maybe if you're a Pokemon fan, you're familiar with Mewtwo. And so our kids were trying to unlock Mewtwo, and they'd been trying forever. And one particular Saturday, I was in my office, and I was listening to the kids. They were playing video games in the living room, and they were trying so hard. And suddenly, there erupted this huge cheer and applause, and they were so excited. They had finally unlocked Mewtwo, and they were so happy. And I was happy. The whole family was happy. And so a couple minutes later, my son Luke's, Luke walks by my office. He's seven years old. He walks by my office, and I said, hey, Luke, you unlocked Mewtwo. He's like, yeah. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah, it's a big deal. And he stepped in my office and he said, Dad, Mewtwo's not a big deal. God's a big deal. <laughs> and then he looked at me like, you should know this. And he walked out of the room. I'm like, la dee da Mr. Spiritual. Go read your Bible. Good. <laughs> That's the message of Revelation, you guys. God is a big deal. He's the only deal. He's the only game in town. And Revelation directs our vision towards this promised future, reminding us that nothing happens by chance. God is sovereign, and we can trust his plan. That is the message of Revelation. Now, you might be thinking right now, well, Jerry, I, I came to church expecting this nice little message on how to be good or how to feed the poor, and it's like Lord of the Rings, man. We're talking about dragons and beasts and battles and kingdoms. We're just missing orcs and elves. What is going on? And we do have plenty of messages on those other things, right? We do. But sometimes we need a strong wake-up call. You know, sometimes we get consumed with this physical world and all, that it, and all that goes with it, but we have to be reminded that there is a spiritual realm. There is a real spiritual battle going on. You guys, God is real. The angels are real. The devil is a real being, and the demons are real. And if none of that is true, then this is just a fairy tale. This is just a joke. We might as well go home and do something that wastes time, Right? But if it's true, then everything changes. And what we are reading today means this is a time where the supernatural world and the physical world collide on the world stage. And it's going to be an incredible day. And it'll be a day either that you're looking forward to or you're scared about. I love this passage in Romans 8 again, verse 18. Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying, I don't care what your persecutions are, and they could be tough, and they could be difficult. It doesn't matter what they are. They don't even compare to what's coming. That's how awesome what's coming is, that no matter how hard it is for us today, what's coming is infinitely better than that. And that is something that we have to look forward to. That is something that we can hold on to. That is something that we need to keep our eyes focused on. Endure the present, knowing that someday that perfect power will make wrongs right, and Christ will come and institute a kingdom where his saints rule. But maybe you're not looking forward to that day. Maybe you're kind of on the other side of the spectrum. You're like, ah, this is all sort of, it sounds kind of fantastical, Jerry, and it sounds kind of weird, and it makes me kind of nervous. 
Maybe you're not prepared for that day. This is the awesome news. This is the gospel of the Bible. It says all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Claim his name, repent of your sins, and follow him, and this all will be yours. And you will not have to worry, and you will not have to be concerned, and it will start to make sense, and you will have a relationship with a living God that you can trust. So let's pray. Father, you are a great and mighty God. You created all things. You sustain your entire creation simply because you will it to be so. God, forgive us for not trusting you, for looking to our own methods of comfort and hope. May we instead rest our hope fully and completely in you. I pray that your spirit will encourage those who are feeling defeated, who have perhaps believed Satan's lie. May you banish Satan from them. May you banish Satan from this place. Remind us that he is the father of lies. And instead, we are filled with the spirit of truth and that you love us as we are, as a father loves his child. And for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing intense persecution, may you strengthen them and may you embolden them and comfort them and remind them that one day you will make things right and their suffering is not in vain. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that nothing surprises you and nothing has dominion over you. We are so glad that Satan will one, one day be defeated as you usher in your glorious kingdom. And may we remain faithful until that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.